Well, good morning. Great to see you. Let's uh, pray as we wrestle with this topic together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together, but we pray again this morning that you would please open our hearts to receive what is true, that you might let it be the case that we are ready to think uh, thoughts that might change our lives, might transform everything. Put us in a place, please, today to be ready for that. And please um, open the truth to us in such a way that we are brought uh, to know you and find life in you. And we ask this again in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you about domestication. You know the word being domesticated. Uh, it's what we do to wild animals. Um, we do it to wild animals when we take them out of the wild, we stick them in a cage, we kind of pull out their claws so they're not dangerous pull out their fangs, shave the mane off the wild lion. We no longer feed them red meat, we give them tofu or something like this. I don't know what you feed wild lions. And you slowly wear them down until they're a pale shadow of once they, what they want. And, and there's cage keepers who are in control, uh, who are, make sure it's safe, and it's an object of our interest and our inspection but it's a very different thing than what it once was. Let me say to you, that's so much of what modern Christianity has done to Jesus. Not that it can do that to Jesus, but that's the way Jesus is framed in much of modern Christianity. We've domesticated him. We've put him in a box. We've made him safe so that we're in charge. We can come to him with our agenda. And this series is about actually getting back to the raw, getting back to the, 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 the real thing, getting the paint scraper out and going back to the way it was, the true Jesus, the real Jesus. And it's critical to do that because the true Jesus is more glorious, more wonderful, more worthy, more terrifying. He is actually worthy giving your life too when you understand the truth of who Jesus is. Not the domestic, not the thing in stained glass windows with that little plate above them, their feet above them. That's not worth following. But the true Jesus, when you get back to him, it's critical to, to see this. And the piece we're looking at today, particularly on the resurrection, illustrates that or makes it very much more obvious that the true Jesus is far more glorious than we can imagine. The resurrection. Every Easter, we, our community actually has a moment where it talks about the resurrection, about the death of Jesus, the resurrection. You'll see it trotted out in the papers and often you'll see church leaders presented as talking about the resurrection. And almost always, the resurrection is portrayed as a metaphor for hope. You know, so there, here's a man who was, circumstances took over, he was out of control, he was crushed and crucified, but the resurrection was a kind of a legend, a myth, a metaphor of there being hope at the end of devastation. And so you can have hope. Here is the picture of it for you. And that's the way Easter portrays the resurrection so often. Friends, people died because of the resurrection. None of us would die for that picture the myth of a metaphor of hope. But men and women gave up everything to tell the world because the true Jesus wasn't safe, but was so glorious he was worthy giving your life too. Let's dig into this today, the resurrection. And again, it's not what does the resurrection have to do with Christianity. It's not what Christ, it's, it's let's do the whole revolution. Start back at the resurrection and see whether we fit into it not make it fit into us. I want to do it under three headings. What is the resurrection? Uh, what the evidences are for it? Did it happen? Uh, 
And thirdly, the big thing, the difference it makes. And that's where we're heading this morning. Let me start with what it is. Now, we use the word, Christians talk about the resurrection, but what is the resurrection? In its original context, it was not just a myth. It wasn't even a myth of hope after loss. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't even the thought that someone comes back to life again. It was that, but far, far more. It was that a dead man comes back to life again, never to die. Come back to life into a whole new realm. Not just resuscitated, but resurrected. The Jewish people, the Jewish community had a hope given to them in the Old Testament about a coming eternal age, we call it heaven, where there'd be a whole new creation, a whole new created order, where humanity would be recreated to be all that God intended for it. That we'd be um, glorious as his image bearers, where there'd be no more sin, no more disease, no devastation, no oppression, no racism, no evil where we'd be reconciled to God and to each other, there'd be no more death. And that was to be the resurrection age. What's being said when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus isn't that he was resuscitated, but it is that he was the firstborn of that new age. He was one who went through death into the resurrection. A new man, the first member of it. It's massive what's being said. Which, of course, begs the question, did it happen? Let's go second. And I want to consider this uh, for all of us, actually, uh, not just for those amongst us who might be here today exploring these things, and it's wonderful you're here and we trust you find it helpful, that you might be becoming kind of sceptical about these things, wondering about, um, I'm going to go through the evidences for you to consider. But also I want to do it for those of us who have been around a long time. You might be here, of course, believing all of this is true, and I want to do it for you as well, because, and I'll tell you why, there is a day coming when you will be tested, when you'll be pressed to consider, really, is this true? I, I've got a friend who uh, was diagnosed with lung cancer some years ago now, uh, uh, praise God, he's still going on, but he was given 12 months to live, and he, even as a Christian minister, when he had that diagnosis, went through a crisis of faith. He wondered, is this true? What, what happens when you die? Because really, now it's right in my face. And he had to press in to consider the whole issue of whether this is really true. There'll be that moment come for you when it's the death of someone you love, when it's your own mortality that's brought face to face with you. So we need to consider these things very carefully and not just live with a simple conviction that it's true, but actually know why. Also, the reason why it's helpful is because your friends hopefully will ask you why you believe it. And it's important that you have something more to say than the Bible says. Now, why is that the case? Because the Bible itself trades on historical events. It actually speaks to evidences itself. And that we understand the evidences that God himself has given us is important as we speak to others about these things. Christianity is not grounded on a myth or a fairy tale that we just throw out our minds and believe anyway against all the evidence. Christianity, unlike other religions, is grounded on historical events that we need to have the evidences for. Now I'm today going to go, not through all of them, but I'm going to give you five evidences for the resurrection and mention very briefly some others. Let me give you the first one. How can we trust the account of the resurrection? Because of the awkward parts. Have a look there in Matthew 28. If you've got a Bible, grab it and have a look. Um, if you haven't, just listen in. 
There's a bunch of awkward parts that you can see. You'll see it there in Matthew chapter 27, verse 55. At the crucifixion of Jesus, this all took place to fulfill the writings of the prophets that they might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now, we know as you go through chapter 26 and into chapter 27, it was the male disciples that fled, not the women. The women were there to actually see the crucifixion. Chapter 27, verse 55. They were there to see him buried. And chapter 28, verse 1, they were there to see the resurrection. They were the first witnesses of the resurrection. The men, gone. Now, that's awkward, I'll tell you why. Because the person writing this is a man. And there is a thing called fragile male ego. (laughs) Have you heard of that? Hands up who hasn't got it. The, the woman, yes, that's, <laughs> that's right, very, very clever. Um, yeah, yeah, every man in the building's got it. And I tell you, every man, who, we've all got a man. For, it's just part of who we... In the first century, it was worse. Let me tell you why it was worse. Because we've actually had thousands of years of a Christian culture that shaped for us a desire to think about humility and not kind of boast about ourselves. But back in the first century, male ego was given full reign. And so, how does all of this play out? Well... What makes a man write an account, think about it, he's fabricating this story, just imagine, to win the world over to this fiction of which he's the leader of a new movement. What would make a man write a story that makes him look like a loser at every point? And that's, the men aren't there, they've gone. Even chapter 28, when Jesus is raised, so his report tells us, They gather around him in verse 18, 19, um, I'm sorry, verse 17, some of them doubted. Matthew tells, we 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 weren't these great leaders who just captured it like you ought to so quickly. He leaves the awkward bits in. What would make a man write this stuff about himself? Come back to the women, chapter 28. It's the first, the first witnesses of the resurrection are the women. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to look at the tomb. Now remember, this is a patriarchal society. And I'm not saying anything, I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying anything like this, but in that society, the testimony of a woman was discounted. We have a writer called Josephus, who's from that period of history, the first century. He said these words, quote, Even witness of multiple women is of no account. That's the first century. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying I approve of any of that, of course, but, but think, you're a man and you're going to write a story that itself is going to struggle to be believed because it's so extraordinary and you're making this up and you're trying to get this new movement going with you as a leader in it. What would make you think it's a good idea to have the key witnesses to that story? Women. Half a dozen women. Do you sense the pressure to not include them or to have a man somehow find them? What would make them tell it the way they did? A determination to say exactly what happened, the way it happened. A conviction that what happened on that day mattered far, far more than any male's need for affirmation. That what happened on that day transcends culture's problems with men, women and the way we... 
that it was so much bigger than anything we're about that you are committed to say exactly what happened, as inconvenient and unscornful as it is. It changed everything so profoundly. There was an awareness of these authors that this was a God event. And let's just say it, because God can deal with the consequences. These first leaders were utterly committed to telling the truth, even at the cost to themselves. And I'm offering that the awkward bits tell us that we're dealing with eyewitness accounts, not fabrication. I'll give you the second evidence. It's the names. Now, some of you will have been around these things long enough to realise that we've got four different accounts of the event of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They all talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, of course. But as we look at the four different accounts and compare them, one of the things that emerges very obviously is that the the names of the women who went to the tomb, who were the first eyewitnesses, are different. So we have here in Matthew 28, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Just to draw your attention to this, in the first century, 25% of Jewish women were called Mary. So you had to find some way to disambiguate, you see. So it's Mary from the town of Magdalene. It was the other Mary. It was Mary, the mother of. So you get all of that. But Matthew includes Mary Magdalene, the two Marys. But when you get to Mark's gospel, he includes the name of a third woman, Salome. And when you get to Luke's gospel, he drops one of the names and adds a fourth name. And when you get to John's gospel, which is very much the latest gospel written many decades after these accounts, there's only one name mentioned who goes to the tomb, and that's Mary Magdalene. Now, some have suggested that this shifting and changing of names is one of those little bits of evidence that we're dealing with a a poorly fabricated myth that they can't even agree on the names. But a major piece of research has recently been done done by a man called Richard Borkham, who's written quite a massive book investigating Jesus and the eyewitness accounts and doing it in light of other first-century accounts and other ancient Jewish literature of this kind of order and he's done an incredible service it's worth chasing up it's a very big book though and it's a bit of a technical one but he draws attention to the fact that the differences between the accounts reflect the fact that each account was written at a different time to a different audience and so they change the names to reflect that and to illustrate it let me give you this this will help us I think appreciate his point years ago I used to uh, hunt for lobster in Spoon Bay Um, But a few of us would go and do that at one in the morning when it was a moonless night. The moon was no longer shining because when the moon didn't shine, the lobsters came out from their crevices and they'd they'd walk around the sea floor, but they'd be out in the open. And so you could swim around with a torch and and grab them. So we'd we'd do that. There was a few, a whole bunch of us went and did it. You know, Pete Brown and a bloke called Kel. um, And uh, we'd wander down the pathway into Spoon Bay and go and do this. Now, did you notice something? I just told you a couple of names. Now, why did I tell you names? I didn't tell you all the names. If I was in Coffs Harbour, where you know we've got our anchor church is going up there with the, the boys up there, and um, a bunch of our people are up planting that ministry, and it's going really well, praise God. But if I went and shared the story there, I would do this. I'd say a bunch of us went down to Spoon Day. We used to catch lobsters at midnight, and um, Dean was there. Now, why the change in names? You think about it. Why would I do the story differently, giving different names in different places? Because Dean's up at Coffs Harbour. And Pete's here. 
and Kelsey. You see, and why would I tell you the names and not just say a bunch of us did it? You can go and talk to the people who were with me and did it. And I tell you the people who were here because you can go and see them and they go, yeah, they'll tell you the story about all the shark stories that they used to tell as we walked down the path towards us. Shut up! But you see, that's exactly the nature of these first century eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark and Luke were written very early and they give us the various names that are associated with the people, the community they're writing to and who they'd know and who they could speak to. But when you get to John's Gospel, they're all dead. And it's only Mary Magdalene they would have known of. The accounts actually, Richard Borkham draws attention to the fact that these, these accounts reflect very clearly eyewitness account reporting of people who are in the events and sharing the news with people. And they can go and check up. We have a man called Papias, who was a first century writer. Not in the Bible, outside of the Bible. And he talks about how important it was to go to the people who were eyewitnesses in the church community. And he knew, he actually knew Philip, you'll hear later in the accounts, and heard his daughters. He was a contemporary with those very people. Friends, we are dealing with an account that has the mark and the ring of clear eyewitness reporting. Let me give you the third one. The fact of the empty tomb. Everyone agrees the tomb is empty. There has never been a pilgrimage to the tomb to look at the body because it's not there. And the whole section in chapter 28 uh, from verse 11 down to 15 is about forming an alternate theory to the empty tomb, the missing body. And what we're told there is that the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, it will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day, which again alerts you to the fact that this account is early. He's writing in a context where that report is still circulating around his community. But they've come up with a different solution, a different answer, a different theory. They've stolen the body. That's compelling evidence for the truth of the resurrection. Why? Because that's all they had. That's the best they could do to counter this story. They couldn't pull out the body and say, here it is. They had to make up a story that this bunch of men who'd run away now had the courage to overpower and bring out and pull over a rock and... It's still going today, that theory, he says, back in the ancient world. Fourth, the lives of the early witnesses. These men who wrote these accounts were scrupulous in their concern to tell the truth. They were scrupulous about the truth, not just in their telling, but in their lives. They were known as men of integrity. James, who writes our book, James, who was a brother of Jesus, who was convinced of who Jesus is upon the resurrection, James was known as a man of great righteousness amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. The extraordinary life of these people is testimony to the fact they did not make this up. Listen to a few examples. Acts chapter 5 has a, a wonderful little incident where the uh, first preaching of the gospel is resisted. There's a great hostility towards it. And um, they respond by saying these words. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. 
whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as king and saviour. And we are witnesses of these things. We saw it. And we keep testifying to it, that we saw it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, after explaining the four big points of the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, him being seen by witnesses, says these words, that if Jesus is not risen, if there is no resurrection, we are made out to be liars and the truth is not in it because we are committed to the truth, these people said. John, who was there amongst all of this, said in his first letter, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that's what we proclaim to you. Not a myth. They insisted it was real and they died proclaiming it was real. They spent years of their lives travelling the ancient world at great cost to themselves through great hardships, saying to anyone who would listen that this happened. Now, this is a group of men, you remember, who fled. But within a few short weeks stood up in front of hostile crowds and spoke with incredible boldness. What did that to them? The fact of the resurrection. Five, the rise of the early church in the very city where it was said this thing happened. You know, you want to put out a story that I'm God. I know you do. All right. You want to put it out that I'm God and I'm not going to die and will rise again from the dead if I do. Let me give you a bit of advice. Don't try and do that while I'm still alive and don't try and do that on the central coast. Why not? Because there's too many people who know it's a stupid lie. Too many people who can prove it's false. You want to do it in another country in 100 years' time. This account got its greatest traction 200 metres from the tomb. They stood up just a short walk from where the burial site was and said, the man you killed on a cross and buried in that tomb is alive, never to die again, resurrected into a new age. And it got traction. Thousands believed in those first weeks. There's many more evidences. There's five just chief ones for you. Let me give you a quick snapshot. The nature of the witness experiences, the fact that Jesus appeared to one person, appeared to two people, appeared to 500, appeared at dawn, during the day, at night, in different places. The nature of the appearance is so vast and varied and different. The conversion of the Apostle Paul from hostility to incredible turnaround, something made that happen. The link with prophetic hope, the fulfilment in detail of Old Testament into New Testament, and then the personal experience of so many sitting here today. We serve a risen Saviour who is with us now. This thing happened and it changes everything. So let me now come to the third and last point. How does it change things? What is different because of this event having happened? Now I've got four points here. The first two are fairly um, obvious and straightforward. It's the last two I want to pay most attention to. So stick with me for those. But let me give you the first two. They're very obvious. The first one is this. If the resurrection happened, miracles happen in our world. 
It's not a closed universe that science controls. There is a God who can make his world be as he chooses it to be. If there is a God, he can raise the dead or put them to death. And the resurrection... You might be sitting there discounting out of hand the possibility of miracles, but you only need one to prove your theories wrong. And the evidence for the resurrection is astonishing. Second... If the resurrection is true, then this life isn't all there is. Remember what the resurrection is. It's not just coming back to life and then dying again. It's not just a resuscitation. It's the start of a whole new life that goes on forever. It's entry into a new age, a new creation, where humans are remade, where we're reconciled to God and to each other with a whole new being, a life that will never die. Jesus' resurrection proves that that age to come is real. That we are made for a new age. This is a shattering historical event that changes everything. You know, we look around and we do keep thinking this world is all there is. We even have this kind of saying, um, you, you know, people have a saying about you better go and do something because you only live once. What's that word? YOLO. We have a word for it. We have an epidemic today of this worldliness where all that matters is your life in this world and how you live in this world. And so get the best house you can, get the best life you can. Make sure you move to the dream location to live there because this is all you've got. Make sure you adventure, you travel. Pandemics killed all of that, of course. And so I've talked to people who their whole ambition in life was to travel the world and experience. They can't do it. But that's all driven by the fact that we think this world's it. That's all there is. If Jesus is raised from the grave... It makes abundantly certain and crystal clear that this life has never been it. That there is a new age to come, where death is gone, where evil and sin is defeated, where every hope you've ever had for good will be fulfilled. You know, Jesus is the absolute assurance that these things are true and real. You know, your life here... Um, it is the case, I experience this, I don't doubt you as well. There are moments of beauty and joy in this life, aren't there? There are those moments where you go, this is awesome, life is great, the food is great, the friends are great, the experience, this is beautiful. But then they go. They offer so much, but it slips through your fingers. Have you experienced this? Now, some of you I know have actually not experienced much of that at all. Your, your life is just a constant walk of pain. But others, you have experienced this. Life tantalises us, it taunts us. It's good, and then it's not good. It's good for a period of time. And you think to yourself, surely there could be more, there should be more. But it's just not for long. It, it offers the promise of something perfect, which is just over the horizon all the time. The resurrection. It says that that feeling you have is real. There is more. We were made for more. God has put eternity in our hearts and we are restless. The resurrection says that's not just a dream, it's real. And therefore to live for this life as if this is all there is, is, I don't know, I don't want to be offensive, but it's, it is the most foolish thing you can do. 
to not ask the bigger questions, to not at least wonder if there's more, to not at least investigate the resurrection of Jesus if it really is true. Because what it offers you is everything. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't someone explore these things to find out if they are true? I'll tell you why not. Because it has such an impact on our lives that we're not sure we want it. There are implications that are life-changing for those that do embrace it. And that's the next two points I want to make. You see, what is the difference of the resurrection? Well, the difference of the resurrection is it's, it's what it says about Jesus. You know, it tells us there's the miraculous. It tells us there's a life to come. But it also tells us Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lord of heaven and hell. He's the Lord of life and death. He's the ruler, the king, the authority over us, our boss, the boss of every human on the planet. He is your Lord. This is where Matthew 28 ends, verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. I reign and rule as the king of humanity. And I've been put in that place by the resurrection, Romans chapter 1. Now, how does that work? How does the resurrection put Jesus in that place? Let me give you a little bit of background, very briefly. There's much more to be said here. But in the Old Testament, there was a series of promises made by God to his people about a new age to come, uh, about this new creation. And the promises drew attention to the fact that a ruler one day would come who would rule for good, being good. He would end oppression. He would end tyranny and evil. He'd bring peace. And that one not only would come to destroy evil and death, but he would come as one who himself would never die. He would never be left to see decay. You get this in Psalm 16, Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7. You get it in Daniel 7. You get it in numbers of places in the Old Testament that prophesies the coming of a great ruler who would restore humanity and do it as one who himself would conquer death. The resurrection of Jesus... It's God's stamp on that man 2,000 years ago that you are the one. You are the Lord over everyone. That earlier quote from Acts chapter 5, God has exalted him to his own right hand as king. This is why those early believers preached like they did. They didn't just preach that God has a beautiful thing for your life. They didn't just preach that there was a lifestyle that you lived that could be happy and wonderful. That's not worth dying for. They preached that God's ruler has come to call you back under himself, that every knee will bow to this one, every tongue confess to this one. His resurrection means he is the Lord and that therefore means repent. Acknowledge that you have been wrong to think that life's yours, to do with as you please, to recognise he is your Lord and bow the knee now. Those early preachers preached that kind of sermon almost every time they preached. He is raised, he is the king. 
But lastly, the resurrection also says that this Jesus 2,000 years ago is our saviour. His death worked to save us. No matter how deep the mess you're in, no matter how full of shame you are, the resurrection says that his death paid. Now, how does it do that? I'd urge you to go back and listen to the sermon last week as Jez took us through the cross about the death of Christ. The, the fact that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay a debt that we couldn't pay, that we owe, a debt that will kill us, that will send us to, to condemnation forever. Jesus comes to give his life to pay in our place, to pay the debt that we need to pay. And the fact that he rose bodily says that that debt has been paid. It's been received. Let me give you an illustration of this. It's the, um, it's the pawn shop, P-A-W-N shop. You've heard of pawn shops, yeah? Um, the, 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 the play, what do they call them? They call them something else now. Cash converters, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's that much better than pawn shop, isn't it? I can see the problem. It's the cash converters. You go to a cash converter shop, and it might be that you found yourself in financial difficulty. You're in debt, and you can't pay your bills. So you get your favourite guitar or your jewellery or surfboard or something. You take it to the cash converters, and, and they give you an amount of money for it to get you out of trouble, you see. But they keep it. And at some point, they can sell it. But if you get back in time, I think this is how it works, if you can get back to them in time... You can pay a set amount of money and redeem it, free it. Now, here's the thing. How do you know you've paid the money that needs to be paid to redeem it? What's the evidence that I've paid enough to redeem it? They give it back. They give it back. Jesus comes to pay a price to free us from death, eternal death. The fact that he comes back to life himself is evidence that the debt has been paid, free. And he now has the power to give that gift of life, freedom from death, judgment, condemnation, sin, freedom to whoever comes and bows the knee to him. He has conquered death and now has the power to give you that victory. And the resurrection is evidence that that's the case. He is the Saviour, Lord and Saviour. And so now can be with you because he's alive. And he can be with you always in the midst of every trial until he takes you home. Now we've covered a lot of ground, but really it's only two big things. And I want to apply it for, to us just this moment now. We've covered a lot of ground First point, it's real. The resurrection happened. Second point, it matters. It makes a difference. There is life to come. There is the miraculous. And Jesus is Lord, Saviour. Now, what do you do with that? Well, one thing you do is clarify the process. I talked to lots of people about these things over many years. You might be surprised of that. Um, and, uh, and one response I get is the one that's probably most frustrating to me, though if it's your response, happy to talk with you about it. And it's the response that goes along like this. Yeah, yeah, I hear that you're a Christian, others are Christians, and you talk about it and so on. But I could never become a Christian because I don't like what the Bible teaches about sexuality 
men, women, marriage, the church, whatever. I can never become a Christian because I don't like what it teaches, what Jesus has to say about these topics. Do you see the problem with that thinking? Do you just imagine, you, you, you raise the question of whether America landed on the moon. And someone says, look, I could never believe in the moon landing because I don't like Biden's politics. You, <laughs> well, how did you go with Trump then? Even less. But, you know, like, how do you deal with that, you see? Because it just, it's a complete category area. That you don't like the teaching doesn't mean the resurrection didn't happen. You with me? The whole point is not whether you like the teaching. The point is, did Jesus come back to life again, resurrected or not? If he did, whether you like the teaching or not, is irrelevant. No, it actually is relevant. Because if he came back to life again, then you need to completely revise the way you think about his teaching. Because he's not just another religious leader. He's not even the best. He's the only one. He is the Lord and God come amongst us. And so his word is your word, is the word that rules us. And it actually forces you to begin to think into, how did I come to these opinions that are so at odds with my creator? How have I come to these opinions? Because I've drunk so deeply of Hollywood. Fool. Because I've drunk so deeply of the cultural elites that are themselves fallen and sinful and corrupt. Where best should I go? Repent. Brothers and sisters, what matters most, friends, what matters most is whether Jesus rose again as your Saviour and Lord. And if that happened, there is a future that is more wonderful than you could ever imagine, that is more beautiful. What he offers for us is, is why wouldn't you want it to be true? Because it means bowing the knee and repenting. And we are so determined to be our own kings that we will go to hell rather than bow the knee to a good saviour God. But it's true. It's more real, more wonderful, more worthy of our adoration and more terrifying. But let's pause there and see if there are any questions. I've got a couple more things to say. First question on the text, someone looking at it, as in the text that we've been looking at in Matthew, chapter 27, verse 66, says, they put a seal on the stone. What does that mean? Oh, just a, like you would put a seal on, a, on, a, on an envelope to a bit of wax, seal it so that there's no tampering. If any tampering happens, it's evident someone's tampered. You know, so someone might, um, you know, you, you would fear that someone might take the stone away, take the body put the stone back and pretend, yeah. What does happen when we die? What's, what's the next experience for us? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a bit of debate about this uh, in Christian circles. The Bible's not incredibly full in its teaching on what happens at that point. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is the passage to go and look at. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5. And it seems, my understanding from chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that of what happens upon death is not soul sleep. Many people kind of have this idea, you know, when you used to go on holidays as a kid and you'd sleep in the back of the car and you'd, your experience was fall asleep at home, wake up 
on holidays. Did you, you know that experience? It was a beautiful experience. Someone else did all the driving. My you know? kids never do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, having said that, my toddlers would wake up and cry the whole two hours. Yeah. But, um, you know, and some people think soul sleep is the thing that happens. You know, we, we die, we sleep until Jesus returns and we don't know anything. No, no. I think 2 Corinthians 5 and the book of Revelation indicates that we'll be conscious as spirit with our Saviour Jesus gathered around the throne but we'll be disembodied and we'll wait until the resurrection, the return of Jesus, the parousia, until the body is raised to be united again with our spirit. It's a, it, there's, there's a whole theology there to think into, but what happens is we'll be with Jesus. A longer question here, uh, an honest one. I've personally looked into the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and found it pretty convincing. However, I still have major doubts about the resurrection that I can't seem to shake. These doubts stem from the fact that I haven't seen it happen and since it happened so long ago. Because of this, while I do believe in Jesus' resurrection, this faith is unsteady and easy to shake. How can I dispel these doubts so I can fully believe? Yeah, it's good. We need to sit and talk. And I, I don't mean that facetiously. I mean, um, doubt is an interesting thing. Doubt, there are many reasons for doubt. Sometimes doubt is simply an intellectual thing. I don't have enough information. And when it's an intellectual thing, more information helps. Um, and so, you know, some more information that can help is being aware that just because you don't see something doesn't mean it's harder to believe. There's lots of things we all believe even though we can't see them. We believe in equality can't see it. We believe in love. You can't see it. You can see the results of it, but you can't see the thing. There's lots of things. Um, um, you know, um, we believe in historical events that have happened that we weren't there to see. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of things. Now, that's a bit of information, but some doubt comes from lack of information. Fix it by information. But some doubt comes from um, personal instabilities of life. You might be someone who's struggling to believe, to have confidence about anything in your life and so that's a symptom of a bigger thing going on that's not just about the Christian evidence as a message it's about something in your own personal experience it could be a moral thing uh, lots of people have doubts because over some years they've progressively stepped away from living for Christ the way he would have them live and they find themselves wanting now to live in a different way and that fuels doubts because I can't believe it's I don't want to believe it's true anymore so there's all kinds of things that fuel doubt and that's why that person would be good to sit with and say, let's, let's find out what's fueling it for you. Is it just information? Is it a personal thing that's going on for you in all kinds of relationships? You might find your marriage is difficult because I can't trust my husband's love. There's all kinds of things going on in human psychology there. So I'd love to talk with you. Yeah, and real invitation. We're, uh, as a church, we love to talk with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so feel free to hit up. Andrew, uh, other pastors, if you're looking for one, you could head to the welcome desk and say you'd like to talk to someone. Yep. We'd love to do that. Yep. Uh, we might finish with this one. Uh, so Jesus was resurrected bodily. So where is he now? And when is he coming back? <laughs> okay. Um, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, tells you that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, bodily. You must, we must rid ourselves of the notion that 
the new age is a spirit thing, it's a physical thing, it'll be a physical age, a new heavens and a new earth will be creatures with a physical body. Jesus is there now, uh, around the throne. Um, when is he coming back? Oh, look, I think March. <laughs> what do you reckon? Um, yeah, I don't know, don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think it could be any month. I don't think it could be any second. There's another whole biblical discussion to have amongst friends. But the point is, he is coming back. And Jesus himself says, when he comes back, it'll be like a thief in the night. So when he comes back, he, he uses the illustration, it's like the flood, Noah's flood. He says, when the flood came, they were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, receiving in marriage. They were doing normal life as if it would go on and on and on and then the flood hit them. Now, just notice a couple of things, actually. The rain had been going for 40 days and 40 nights, right? The flood didn't just suddenly appear, okay? There were signs of it coming, okay? Um, but what Jesus is saying is that they were so committed to the idea of a life that kept going on and wouldn't end, they wouldn't let themselves see the evidences otherwise. Jesus says, you'll come like a thief in the night. So, do you see what he's saying? Don't put off today what needs to be done. Don't put off getting right with Jesus today. Don't think you might have years. We don't know that you will. I mean, there might be, like Derek's friend, you might have a an accident, you might, something might occur. Who knows when the Lord will take you? Um, but he is coming back. Uh, and this really matters. And here's my final thoughts for us. If you're sitting here and you believe the resurrection, and I know most of you do, how's it changing your life? How are you living that's different? Are you living the middle-class Australian dream? Or are you living the Christian life? The life that's shaped by the fact that this world in its present form is passing away. Use the things of this world as though not engrossed in them. We are totally engrossed. It is so easy to be engrossed because the mood we move amongst just says this world's going to go on. It'll just keep happening. And so we build up our nest egg. We build up our retirement. We look forward to the great travel experiences and doing whatever we can. No, friends, we must repent. We must use our money differently, our time differently, our energies differently. Do you know we struggle to get Sunday school teachers at the moment? Why? Because people are too busy on Sundays. It must be different for us. We have to rebuild this whole church and its ministries after having gone through the the worst experience in our community for 100 years. And, and that will take people who are bought into the truth of the resurrection. Let that be you. Live differently. If you're here amongst us and you're wondering about these things, can I urge you not to put off investigating? You might be ready today to actually do something about this, but it might be still you're going, I'm hearing what you're saying. Don't put off investigating. Come along to life. Pursue these things. Everything hangs on it. Let me pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have worked in history such an event 
And we thank you that you've given such testimony of it, four accounts, plus other accounts, plus other evidences. We are so grateful that you have given so much. And we pray that you would help us come to these things with hearts and minds ready to bow the knee to the Lord, the giver of life, that we would find life in him. And pray then too that you would help us live differently in light of it. We ask it in his name. Amen.